Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, we are joined by Clay Jenkinson and Lindsay Chervinsky for an extended conversation about the Enlightenment. Lindsay Chervinsky is a recent PhD working in the nation's capital and in Virginia with connections to Charlottesville and the Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation. On this episode, we talked about the principles and purposes of the Enlightenment and how much they trickle down to the average person in the street, either in London or in Philadelphia. Lindsay Chervinsky is a recent PhD, and her first book, The Cabinet of George Washington, was an extraordinary piece of scholarship and insight. She's now writing blogs and is frequently interviewed. She's an optimist, but she's sort of a grieving optimist with certain Hobbesian pessimism at times. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson. And so good to see you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, you were a disciple of the Enlightenment. Can these principles guide us today, sir? Well, some of the, the conclusions and results of Enlightenment thinking have been superseded by better understanding and enlightenment by better science. We all know that any scientific hypothesis or proposition is uh, ripe for review and revision. That's the very nature of the scientific enterprise. You know, we never stop. We never believe that we have finally fully understood anything. So some of the results of enlightenment thinking have been discredited or have been superseded, and, and that's entirely for the good. But I don't think you can ever get beyond the process of the Enlightenment. And by that I mean this. If you take a look at something like types of trees, and this is Linnaean science, or I suppose you might even take it all the way back to Aristotle. There are basically two types of trees. There are deciduous trees, and then there are evergreen trees. That's the basic Aristotelian slice. Well then, amongst evergreens, it turns out you have spruce and you have pine, and in among deciduous trees, you have elms and oaks and Lewis and Clark's cottonwoods and so on. So this idea that you look at the world of this sort of seemingly undifferentiated set of phenomena, whether it's trees, animal species, or clouds, or the elements of the air, and you use reason to slice them into subcategories, that's essential work of the Enlightenment, and it will never end. Linnaeus, father of binomial nomenclature, identified about eight or 9,000 species, maybe up to 12,000 species. I'm told that in your time, a more than a million species have been taxonomized. The procedure of looking at things and trying to discern underlying principles or patterns, that's absolutely central to the Enlightenment. That's one thing. The second thing that's central to the Enlightenment is, is the belief that the, better, the future will be better than the past and even better than the present, that humans are capable of some level of perfectibility, especially collectively, that I may be an imperfect human being, but if I'm associated with others working in the same area, we will advance understanding and, and we will find a way to put two pieces of meat in every pot rather than a single one and to make the beds of the poor more comfortable than they were. Those parts of the Enlightenment can never be discredited 
and they have a dynamism and a usefulness to humankind that makes them essential tools. And, and believe me, these did not exist in the year 1400. What about the average citizen and the average citizen's legal rights? What effect did the Enlightenment have on those, sir? Well, some of this goes back to the ancient world. The Romans had developed certain notions of natural law and natural right. And some of the things that we uh, take for granted have uh, their foundations in uh, Greece and Rome and to a certain extent even in the Bible. But it wasn't until the modern world that these things really got codified. So if you look at the difference between the Magna Carta, which protects aristocrats against the king, which is a very, very limited application of the idea of human right and due process, now throw yourself into your own time where you have habeas corpus. In other words, you can't take a person and throw him into jail and throw away the key, that he has an actual right to appear in court, that he's entitled to counsel. These things are not inventions of the Enlightenment, but they were codified and set in stone in the Enlightenment. Sir, I look at the Enlightenment as a way to mark the progress of man and thought. It will never end. Once people realize that they have rights, they will work assiduously to protect those rights. And, 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 and when, the, when the protections are strong and stable, then they will extend those rights to others who have not yet been embraced by these principles. And I always said, some sooner, some later, but eventually all people on earth will live in societies with due process and with due respect for the rights of man. There's no, no turning back. There will be moments of darkness, of course, but in the end, every world nation will be America in some sense of that term. Thank you so very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are most welcome, sir. Good day, citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with or about President Thomas Jefferson. I'm your host, David Swenson, here with the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, the noted humanities scholar and author Clay Jenkinson. And today, we once again welcome Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky, a noted historian of early America and the author of The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. She is currently a scholar in residence at the Institute for Thomas Paine Studies uh, at Iona College and a senior fellow at the International Center for Jefferson Studies and teaches at the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University. And also, Lindsay, you co-host a podcast, The Past, The Promise, and The Presidency, and publish a newsletter titled Imperfect Union. Welcome back, Lindsay. So good to have you here with us. Thanks so much for having me back. Uh, you know, I have to mention your latest Imperfect Union blog, which is sort of a provocative title, quote, Why the Framers Never Intended is Garbage. It was a very interesting blog. You started by saying, in the last few months, 
An increasing number of politicians have made arguments that start with, the founders never intended. This sort of struck a nerve in you, didn't it? Yeah, that's been frustrating me for a while. And usually I respond with some sort of snarky joke online or, you know, I'm dismissive. But then I realized that that was perhaps being unfairly elitist of me because not everyone has spent the last decade studying the framers and wouldn't necessarily know why that phrase is very problematic. So I set about explaining it as accessibly and directly as possible. It's a, a short but very interesting read. And do you want to tell people how they can subscribe to your blog before we get into this week's conversation? Sure. So if you go to lindsaytravinsky.substack.com, and Travinsky is spelled starting with a C-H, um, you can sign up and it will send you a monthly email with the essay and then a recap of other podcasts and episodes and articles and whatever I've been up to. It's only ever once a month and it is free. I am a happy subscriber. Lindsay, the last time you and Clay spoke, you both agreed to have a discussion about the Enlightenment. Didn't Enlightenment thought from this period begin with Thomas Hobbes and his social contract theory? If you ask scholars of the Enlightenment, what is the Enlightenment? No two are probably going to agree. Um, and that's because it is such an all-encompassing term that it's very difficult to define. So just a couple of parameters first. A lot of people sort of put the start of the Enlightenment around the 1680s and the end of it around the end of the 18th century, but it's really what we would call the long 18th century, which is all of the 1700s and then some before and a little bit after. Um, if you've listen to this up this show or you know listen to a bunch of scholars people will often refer to the long 18th century and that's what they mean and the enlightenment is a series of interconnected and evolving developments that include a increased focus on rational thought a decline in mysticism as a driving force in society this is not decline in religion, but a decline in sort of a, an approach to the world that is based in sort of superstition and inherited themes, and a increase in applying that rational thought to daily processes, especially in terms of bureaucracy and the government. That's kind of a, hopefully, a helpful overview and a good place to start. So let me agree with all of that, of course. And I'm going to read just a bit from my book, Repairing Jefferson's America, which in which I asked myself, what in, in a nutshell is the Enlightenment? Um, so here goes. Reason, reform, rationality, a belief in human progress, science, and for many, the perfectibility of man. Taxonomy, classification of plants, animals, minerals, the periodic table, library classification systems, the varieties of humankind, the constituents of the air, classification of the world's languages, encyclopedias, almanacs, and digests of knowledge, separation of church and state, Thomas Paine's The Rights of Man, coffee houses, salons, and the second great age of exploration, Captain Cook in Tahiti to observe the transit of Venus, Benjamin Franklin seeking to protect Cook from naval interference during the war with Britain, Alexander von Humboldt's detouring to America to meet the great Jefferson, and get his copy of Notes on Virginia signed, Dr. Johnson's Dictionary of the English Language, the invention of the noble savage, 
the termination of biblical literalism in the quest for the historical Jesus, penal reform, the birth of the magazine, Robinson Crusoe and Gulliver's Travels, the birth of geology, the Longitude Prize, Herschel's discovery of Uranus, the belief that behind every phenomenon there is a simple law of gravity that we need only discern and then apply by way of reform. A couple of themes that stand out to me in that description. So one, sort of the concept of applying rational thought and investigation in a scientific manner to all aspects of life, which led to things like geology and the periodic table and trying to better understand evolution and the scientific world around us. And then there are also a number of developments that have occurred in this time that are both fueled by and fuel this Enlightenment thought. The rise of university centers as a place to train professionals in the sort of more efficient things that we're talking about, but also as, a, as centers of thought to continue to develop these ideas. The rise of coffee house culture, which we've talked about um, on previous episodes, that are places where people can discuss these ideas, but also then spread them. The rise of printing and the decreasing prices of printed goods such that more people have access to these things. And then, of course, the role of religion. And it would be, it would, we would be remiss if we did not mention that I think one of the key factors in making the Enlightenment possible is the fragmentation of religious life. So Reformation is essential in that it there's no longer one religious voice. There's no longer only the Catholic Church. And now there are people who are intentionally questioning what is the right way to practice religion? What is the one true religion? And digging into the origins of religious life and religious texts. And once you start asking questions like that about religion, you're going to ask questions about that a lot, about a lot of different things. So those, are, I think, are some of the driving forces that fuel this process that address a lot of those different developments and discoveries that you mentioned. You know, we take some of this for granted. For example, the encyclopedia. Today we have Wikipedia with more than 4 million entries in English alone. Diderot decided that he would try to digest all human knowledge. If humans knew it, he wanted to find a way to digest it within a set of, of volumes. That notion that we could organize information and that we could make it available in an organized way, alphabetically, for example, and that we would strive to uh, write with clarity and with a certain reformist agenda about absolutely everything. That's a central feature of the Enlightenment. And Diderot, the great French philosopher who was the editor of the French Encyclopedia, said, all knowledge must be recast. Every institution, every habit of the heart, everything that humans do, every idea must be examined and challenged using only the light of reason and a belief that humans are capable of, of some level of perfectibility. And so there was kind of a progress agenda to this too. Jefferson, the minute he learned of the French encyclopedia, got a copy of it at enormous expense. And then there was a revision of it in his lifetime and he got copies of that too. And he actually bought one, Lindsay, for the University of Virginia. But the readers had to actually at some point say, hey, now that you have it, you have to actually deliver it. You can't keep it at Monticello endlessly because Jefferson <laughs> had it at Monticello. And, he was reluctant to carry it down the mountain. So the Enlightenment has a certain passe quality to it now that it feels a little clunky and pedestrian and prosaic and retro. 
but it certainly didn't feel that at the time. You're right. And I think a great way to start is, you know, next time you're sitting down at the dinner table or you're out to out to a meal and a question comes up that you don't know the answer to, think about what it would be like to not be able to pull out your phone and Google it and instead have to either go to your encyclopedia or to write to someone to get an answer or to try and find the answer in some other sort of text. And that accessibility of knowledge was such a revelation when it started to become available, but we have taken it for granted because of the internet and our smartphones that are, you know, these wonderfully complex computers that we carry around. And as a result, it, it quite literally has started to evolve the way our brains work. We no longer hold on to information in the same way that people like Thomas Jefferson or John Adams did because we don't have to. We don't have to memorize things in order to hold on to them. We can just Google them. So I do think it has shifted our relationship as a society with knowledge and facts because we no longer prioritize having that information at our mental fingertips because instead we actually quite literally have it at our fingertips. In 1400, people regarded air as air. It's out there, you breathe it, that's all you need to know, it's air. But in the 18th century, people began to, to ask, well, are there constituents of air? Are there different things that we call collectively air? Joseph Priestley figured out oxygen. He did a series of simple experiments and he was able to separate out oxygen from nitrogen and other elements of the air. And so he began the classification of the constituents of air discovery, you know, we have helium and we have hydrogen and we have oxygen and carbon dioxide and so on. Uh, he was the one who, who set us down the path of being able to not only distinguish these different elements, but then to employ them, to use them for human applications, for progress, for science, for industry. And it's, um, it's wholly admirable. Or take something as simple as the clouds. You know, at some point people said, a cloud is a cloud. But the Enlightenment said, well, not really. There's cumulus and there's cirrus and there's nimbus. And so they looked up at the sky and said, there must be a way to, to find subsets of, of clouds. And, and if we can do that, maybe that will help us understand weather and maybe even come to the point where we can predict weather, when it might rain, when it's unlikely to rain and so on. And so this is always a, a twofold thing, understanding uh, nature better than we did before and then finding ways to apply that knowledge for what Jefferson would call the amelioration of the condition of mankind. And for me, that's breathtaking. The story of how oxygen was, was distinguished from air is one of the great stories of, of Western science and the Enlightenment and the fact that Priestley was a friend of Jefferson's and that this didn't happen until the 18th century is amazing. We'll return to this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to this special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. Lindsay Chervinsky is with us. We're always so glad to have you with us, Lindsay. And you bring a wonderful, fresh perspective to what we're trying to get at here at the Thomas Jefferson Hour. We're talking about the taxonomies and classifications of the Enlightenment from Linnaean classification of plants and animals to the constituents of air or clouds. But when they came to race, they looked at the family of man, let's say, to use one of their terms, and they saw that there were people of lighter skin and darker skin, different facial qualities, different stature, and so on. And this is one of the areas where the Enlightenment is most contested and criticized today. That's right. A good place to start is understanding sort of the the shift in thinking about science and and races and different breeds of animals. And previously, of course, most of the handed down language was that God had created all the species and they were created as they are today. And when that knowledge started to be challenged, they were, you know, Charles Darwin is, of course, most famous for this, but trying to understand how evolution, how species evolved, how there was this development. And in some ways that produced really extraordinary science when we're looking at understanding how, you know, cows and pigs and sheep evolved from various different things. And then they attri- they really tried to apply the same thing to humans and didn't have the sort of, you know, understanding of DNA that we have today, didn't have the same sort of understanding of skin pigment and what sun does to skin and things of that nature. So many of these ideas were sort of pre-shaped by prejudices that already existed. And while a lot of people do think of Europe as being a very white society in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, that was really not the case. There was actually a great deal of diversity that had accompanied a lot of the Atlantic naval trade. People had these presupposed ideas about what was the more evolved race, what was the more evolved way of being, and we're looking for scientific markers to confirm those differences. One, it's often referred to as eugenics. This is sort of the early version of eugenics and the understanding that perhaps people of different colors were different races or had diverged at some point. Now, a a similar version was still sort of applied to women and men. Women were considered a slightly weaker version of of the male human form. And um, it took quite some time for that sort of science to be disputed and to be disproven. We still see some of these arguments in play today where people will focus on perhaps different visual characteristics or different um, types of hair, different types of facial features to suggest that someone is different or less than. And if you want to see the worst kind of case scenario of this, unfortunately, it comes from our man Jefferson, who in Notes on Virginia has two dissertations on race. One is a a fairly strong denunciation of slavery, which was actually used by the abolitionist movement through the 19th century. But then the other one is his attempt to explain the differences between black and white. And I won't go into detail because the details are so horrible. And so he was using eugenics and enlightenment pseudoscience to confirm his own prejudices about the status of the black people that, that... served him in every possible way. And at the end, as you know, Lindsay, he says, I hope this is just sort of a a scientist conjecturing about the evidence such as we have, and maybe I'll be refuted by better evidence. But what we see here 
is a really strong misuse of the taxonomical um, obsession of the Enlightenment to confirm power relations and social hierarchies that uh, were so deeply entrenched that Jefferson couldn't even see how fraudulent his science was in this case. And there were real implications for the lack of full understanding of how this science worked. So, for example, a lot of the populations from Western Africa had a certain element of, they had a certain element of immunization against diseases like malaria and yellow fever because they had either inherited it from their mother or had already experienced these diseases. So when, for example, ships carrying enslaved individuals arrived in the United States and arrived in ports, observers noticed that some of these people didn't seem to have the same sort of fatality rates when there was a yellow fever outbreak. And they, because they didn't understand how, you know, immunity worked at the time, applied that to entire races. So in 1793, when there was a yellow fever outbreak, Benjamin Rush and several other doctors said that basically Black people could not get yellow fever. They were immune and therefore they were the perfect nurses. And that was obviously wrong. Um, Some people did have immunity and some didn't. And they suffered extraordinary fatalities because for those who didn't already have that immunity, they were, of course, um, uh, able to catch the disease just like anyone else. So that's an indication where sometimes observations intended as scientific observations didn't account for the full story because they didn't have the full science and therefore contributed to a further separation of races in a way that was really detrimental. So, for example, today when uh, some um, parts of the African-American community show great hesitation or skepticism about vaccines or um, uh, establishment science, this this isn't something that occurs in a vacuum. There's a long history of the misuse of science with uh, with respect to race and and a willingness to use people's regarded as 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 less valuable somehow as um, subjects of scientific experimentation or in this case frontline workers in the 1793 yellow fever outbreak. Well, here's another version of the same, Lindsay Cotton Mather is one of the people who really got on to the smallpox vaccine as, a, as opposed to inoculation. And he learned it from an African-American slave. But, and, and, and we now um, think we know that there was an understanding of some sort of, of vaccination in Africa and in the Middle East during this time, long before this time perhaps. But it wasn't until Edward Jenner, a British physician, quote unquote, discovered vaccination, and he gets all the credit as if this is something, he's Newton with the apple falling out of the tree. Suddenly Jenner is aware of vaccination, when in fact, if you really look at it without uh, a race hierarchy in mind, it's a more interesting, complex, and rich story than the one that we're frequently told. So I don't want us to get stuck on this side of the Enlightenment because there's so much that's good and great about it, but I do think that the people that are now critiquing the Enlightenment have have good and adequate reason to show skepticism about some of its uh, pronouncements and some of its uh, supposed scientific and and, uh, and political breakthroughs. Earlier, Clay, you talked about how all of the things we take for granted, and I think both of you mentioned, you know, the fact that we can pick up our phones and have an encyclopedia um, in front of us instantly. I'd kind of like to pull the two of you back a bit and, you know, what effect 
did the Enlightenment have on the average citizen? I know, you know we, we're talking about scientific issues that were uh, attempted to be resolved through the Enlightenment, but there was also religion. Um, it was a, what sort of effect did, did Enlightenment thought have on the average citizen? Well, let me quickly give one statement, and then Lindsay can take it deeper. One of the areas where the Enlightenment didn't always agree is religion. Um, you can't say the Enlightenment was secular, although we, we prize, we privilege the secular side of the Enlightenment and separation of church and state and so on, all these things that were born effectively from the Reformation. But, but there was a very wide um, variety of ways in which different uh, nations and different philosophes, different Enlightenment figures addressed the problem of religion. But here's the problem of religion. Uh, some were very devout, some were Catholic, some were Protestant, some were deists. They're all over the map. But they all were facing the same issue, which is if, if, we're, if we're following Diderot's path of re-examining everything and we start to re-examine the central tenets of Christianity, what should we do about the Trinity? What should we do about the virgin birth? What should we do about the miracles? What should we do about the healings? What should we do about the apocalyptic elements? Should we try to... Um, exempt them from rational inquiry? Shall we rethink them and metaphorize them in some way so they don't have to be taken so literally? Or should it, here's what's Jefferson's approach, let's simply dump them. Let's take the parts that don't stand up to reason and good sense and science and let's just dump them. And then we'll, we'll focus instead on what's left. And for Jefferson, what was left is the life and achievements of a human being called Jesus of Nazareth. And for him, that was enough. But remember, he kept this very, very quiet, even secret, because the answer to your question, as far as I'm concerned, David, is that the mass of people were untouched by the Enlightenment, except very indirectly. And their belief systems, their habits of the heart, their, their ways of going about daily life, were benefited by the Enlightenment, say, printing, or meteorology, or access to information in an unprecedented way or scientific instruments that began to help us understand nature. But this was very indirect. If you're, if you're connecting the dots, the average person living in rural Tennessee or rural Georgia or rural uh, Vermont would, would have had a very um, slender connection to all this high-minded thinking that was going on with people like Benjamin Rush and Thomas Jefferson and Abigail Adams. But there was an attempt to reconcile science and religion. That must have affected most folks eventually. Well, most people just either rejected all of this um, or were, I think, largely unaware of it. But, you know, to the extent that Jefferson was known to be a secularist of some sort, a deist or maybe a free thinker or maybe an atheist, that was a very live political liability for Jefferson in most American quarters. I think a helpful way to think about this question is that most Americans, and I think most Europeans as well, would have had their lives impacted in various different ways, but they wouldn't have necessarily known that it was because of this thing called the Enlightenment. People who were philosophical thinkers and political theorists, they knew that this thing called the Enlightenment was going on, but most people did not. However, as you said, they had more access to printed materials. Now, maybe they weren't reading them themselves, but they, as we've discussed, they were you know, hearing them or sharing them at coffee houses or taverns. They 
probably benefited from some better understanding of seasons and and weather and farming implements. And that information uh, affected their ability to provide for themselves. To be sure, religion still continued to dominate most of the local society and shaped their interactions with hierarchy. Religion was sort of the base hierarchy for society most of the time. But the different types of religions, the ability to participate in things like the Great Awakening, were uh, increased by this uh, diffusion of knowledge. The concept of, you know, going to university and becoming a doctor, that was something that some people could do, and then they would maybe benefit from those increased skills and knowledge of the doctors that had been trained in places like Edinburgh, which was a center of science and medicine. So I think there are a lot of aspects of their life that were touched by it. They just didn't necessarily know that that's what was happening. Yeah, and in terms of the, the science and the religion piece, I think that Americans accepted the science when it suited them and they, and Europeans did as well. And they sort of cubbyhold the religion when it suited them too. And to be honest, we still do the same thing today. There is no, you know, there are a lot of things in the Bible that have no scientific basis. And in fact, science would suggest that they are impossible, like an immaculate conception. And yet we still have an incredibly devout religious population or parts of the population are religious. And so we as humans are really, really excellent at picking and choosing what we want to bring into our minds and then what we don't. And if anything, I think that continuing uh, conflict is perhaps one of the greatest legacies of the Enlightenment. I'm kind of at a disadvantage here because the two of you know so much more about this. So I, I need, but I need to, but I want to ask a couple of questions. In particular, you know, when I think of the Enlightenment uh, the phrase social contract comes up. Now, my impression is is that this was sort of a new concept uh, that you could even question uh, the relationship between the public and, and, and the government. I, am I wrong in that, Lindsay? Well, there had always been pushback. Otherwise, we wouldn't have, you know, had revolutions and governments that fall over the course of human history. But the idea that you should be thinking about what the what the political structure of the relationship should be, what the balance of power should be, what the sort of leader owes to the American people. Now, of course, that had always sort of been intuitive. You know, if if there was no grain, for example, then it was expected that your local elite or your local leader would be generous and would help provide food to keep people going in times of famine or in times when when crops had done poorly. But there wasn't that same sort of, I think, political theory behind it. And that was perhaps what was new and fueled by the increasing study of these things and the increasing professionalization of the state, especially in Great Britain, there was an increasingly professional state apparatus. And the idea was that it was supposed to get better and do better and therefore provide better for the people, which if they it then didn't inherently brings the question of what is the purpose of this state. So there was, I think, a an evolution of this concept, an evolution of this idea, and it it with so many of these things fueled further questions. It goes to Diderot's um, mission, which is everything must be re-examined. Everything must uh, must be uh, explored using reason and uh, a sense of the rights and dignity of humankind 
that 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 nothing is um, is sacred, and that and that it's important for us to uh, to use this lens, this sort of rational reformist progressive lens on every habit and every institution. So someone like Jefferson would step back and say, especially because of the revolution, which which dissolved the state and turned people into what Rousseau and Jefferson would have called a state of nature. Then the question is, well, what is a society? And what does a what does a uh, what do the collective do? And how do they organize that? And are there better ways to organize that? So if the three of us were were all the inhabitants on an island, and each of us had five children, we would think, all right. So how should we educate our children? Shall we each homeschool? Shall we each hire a tutor? Maybe we pool together money and hire a, a, a professor or a teacher to handle that. What if uh, Lindsay's hogs get into my orchard? Uh, how do we solve this dispute? Do we shoot at each other? Do we shout? Do we fight? Do we have a duel? Or maybe we create a judicial system. How do we distribute um, goods? What should our coinage look like? And can it be rational? And, and what sort of system of exchange should we develop? And so on and so forth. You start asking these basic questions about how does a, how does a community work? How does a group of people, how does a polity organize itself? And for Jefferson, he would say, well, in history, it just kind of burbles up. You suddenly have the British absolutism and you have feudalism and social hierarchies and the priestcraft and so on. All these things just burbled up in the course of the history of Europe and we can't really understand the origins of most of them because they just sort of are. But now that we have a chance to break with that and to create a new paradigm, it's in our interest to make that a reasonable paradigm and a fair one and a just one and to ask ourselves these sorts of questions. So for, for example, when you asked David previously, what was the enlightenment to the average human being? Think of Jefferson and coinage. Jefferson takes the bizarre system of coinage in the 13 states in the country, and he said, we could rationalize this. And so he gave us decimal coinage, the dollar, the dime, the penny. And he said, this will not only be a more efficient system, and it can be universal in the United States, it may be beyond, but it means that the average laborer will know how not to be cheated by his or her employer. And so this is a perfect example of how the Enlightenment affected an average person. That person may not have known that this came out of the Enlightenment's general program of reasonableness and reform, but the person would have benefited from this because it would be a better system of um, assigning value and, and, and organizing exchange than anything came be, that came before it. So it's, it's marvelous in its practical application. That's what's so great about the Enlightenment. It wasn't just a bunch of people talking in coffee houses. They were saying, how do we fix things? How do we make things better? We need to take a short break from this conversation, but we will return in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to this special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, the Enlightenment edition. And, and my goodness, Lindsay, taking on a question like the Enlightenment in an hour is a species of insanity, really, because it was so pervasive in so many different directions. In America, the two great exemplars of the Enlightenment in this time were Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. And historians sort of argue playfully back and forth who was the more important figure uh, in the Enlightenment in America, but both of them are colossal figures. And Franklin had the advantage of having a common touch and being beloved. Jefferson belongs more to the respected and admired side of that equation. Jefferson was much more willing to keep it in learned journals and transactions and polite letters, and Franklin wanted was more demotic. He wanted it to really affect people in the street. So how do we put out a fire? We create a volunteer fire department. How do we make sure books get into the hands of everybody? We create a library. So there was that pragmatism that both Jefferson and Franklin uh, admired, but Franklin achieved it more fully than uh, his younger friend, Thomas Jefferson. But Lindsay, you were going to say something about what I had said about coinage. Well, what I wanted to actually say when you were talking about what is a society owed to one another and what is the purpose of a society and what are the limitations and benefits of a society, when we think about what the Enlightenment means today, and you had you know commented that it feels sort of stuffy and it feels sort of outdated, that question of what is a society and what do people owe to one another is actually, I think, the biggest question we're facing today in the midst of a global pandemic. And there is continuing debate over what does a society require in order for people to get along with one another? What does a society require in order to survive? What are the benefits and drawbacks of living in a society? And all of these thinkers would have said that there are benefits to living in a society like trade and community and comfort and shared resources. And in return, you have to give things up. You cannot go around stealing your neighbor's pigs or stealing their apples or you name whatever thing you want to do. You don't get to have free reign. And that is the trade-off of living in a quote-unquote civilized society. So a lot of times people do think of the Enlightenment as this old-fashioned, stuffy thing, but the ideas behind it are perhaps more relevant now than they even were 100 years ago. So let's say Lindsay is driving later today, and she's pulled over by um, a bad cop who decides to that she has a taillight out or that she didn't make a full stop at a stop sign. And he starts to, uh, to behave in a sort of um, aggressive or even menacing way. Lindsay, you're going to go to the Enlightenment right now. Habeas corpus, due process, uh, trial by jury, access to a, a counsel, uh, ability to, to confront your accusers. In other words, the things we take for granted in the Enlightenment should never be taken for granted. You have reasonable certainty that if you were placed under arrest later today, that your social compact would prevent you from significant abuse. That's an amazing achievement. Now, if you're African-American, it's a whole different world, right? Yes, I have reasonable certainty as a white woman that I am relatively well protected by these civil rights and aspects of our society that are important. It also helps that I have a smartphone. You know, talking about technology, that helps sometimes enforce these benefits and rights. However, um, you know, I would have far less confidence if I was a man of color that they would apply in the same way. And that is one of the limitations that, in theory, Enlightenment thought should continue to engage with, is how can we better apply these rights and these 
restrictions on behavior to all people such that everyone can have that confidence that I have. Do you think that the problems of the Enlightenment, and we could go on and on about some of them, are fixed by the self-correcting, progressive purposefulness of the Enlightenment? In other words, that we've learned from Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd aftermath and so on, that every, virtually every parent of an African-American male has to have the conversation. Uh, what happens if you are stopped by a policeman of any sort at any time? What should your deportment be to make sure that you come home at night? And the people who say this uh, rightly say that's something that doesn't have to happen in, in the white community, but that has to happen in the black community. So do you think the Enlightenment has enough self-correction mojo to overcome its weaknesses? In theory, if we as a society were as committed to the self-improvement aspects of enlightenment, I would say yes. The problem is we have abandoned the ideas that were so firmly held among, you know, a lot of the great figures that we're talking about, John Adams, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, they knew that they were flawed humans. They knew that their systems were flawed. And they wrote about them, they commented on them in their own personal diaries and letters, and they strove to improve them, whether it be their farming practices, whether it be their own morality, whether it be their tendency towards vanity or, you know, arrogance, whatever you name it. As a society, we no longer do that. We don't think all the time about how we can improve as humans and how our society can improve as humans. And there are obstacles in the way. So for, you know, your particular example, right now there is a reform bill that's being debated in Congress that in theory should help with some of these, um, this police misconduct, but that bill is not being passed or has not passed yet. And why is that? Um, part of it is, is a political configuration. The police unions are very, very powerful and can put enormous pressure on politicians to not adopt certain measures and part of it is that people, some people maybe don't care enough. And so I think that in theory, in a vacuum, the Enlightenment thought and the process behind the Enlightenment thought should be able to help resolve some of these things. As Hobbes said, you know, life is nasty, brutish, and short. And while our lives are longer now and we have more comfortable dwellings generally and, you know, better sewage and all that, I still think it's quite brutish. It can be at times brutish. <laughs> <laughs> I don't intend to end every, I don't intend every episode to say that, you know, like humans are terrible and society is terrible. I do feel like I'm starting to establish a bit of a pattern there, but um, I guess I have sort of John Adams or, or Alexander Hamilton's view of the world that humans aren't so great and we do stuff well in spite of ourselves. So that was uh, Lindsay... Stravinsky's last appearance on the Thomas Jefferson. She's now admitting <laughs> that she's a she's a she's a she's a crypto Hobbesian at heart, maybe an Augustinian. Uh, I really appreciate the fact that you you've sort of drawn this back. It has a tremendous effect on our day to day lives. Well, think of this um, meteorology. So you can go to your your phone app now and look at the weather in your zip code for the next uh, week or month, and you have reasonable certainty that that's the weather that you're going to get. I have a phone app that's the top of a huge industrial scientific pyramid of meteorology. And guess who was one of the fathers of meteorology? Thomas Jefferson. Took down temperature twice a day, the wind, precipitation, cloud cover, and then he got Madison to do it, and he got Meriwether Lewis to do it, and he's always badgering all of his friends to do it because Jefferson said, 
Think about it, folks. If we have comparative weather data from all over, the day may come when we can actually come to predict something about weather and learn something about climate, and we have. I mean, we're, it's infinitely uh, better today than it was when I was a child, and Jefferson would have just marveled that you can go to your smartphone and see what the weather's gonna be like next week, Tuesday. Think about people in hurricanes. Today, we know a great deal about a hurricane. We can predict, we can, we can allow Houston or New Orleans to brace themselves. It, it breaks down from time to time, but it's, a, it's an enlightenment achievement of, of extraordinary uh, importance to daily life for human beings. Well, let me ask, enlightenment is so great, and yet there are some blindnesses. Abigail Adams writes to her husband and says, I, I long to hear that you have declared an independency, and when you do, I hope you will remember the ladies. And she wants to see the rights of man tradition extend all the way across the gender line and she's serious about it. He didn't understand how serious she was, but she was. Meanwhile, Mary Wollstonecraft is writing in England and saying, so what, this is going to be about white men? What about women? What about, what about black people? What about slaves? What about people from other cultures? Does the Enlightenment, is it just a self-serving paradigm for the privileged? Or are we really going to extend these uh, ideas of that all human beings are born equal right to the end of the spectrum? So what do you make of the the capacity of the Enlightenment to be so self-satisfied and so blind at the same time? Well, isn't that sort of the, the great question of the age that we study, that people could speak so eloquently and advocate so beautifully for the rights of some and not see the limitations in their behavior or their you know, ideas. I mean, even, you know, John Adams is a great example. So his letters with Abigail are remarkable. And while he didn't think she was totally serious, there is a great deal of respect and even, I dare say, equality in their correspondence in that she was the financial manager for their relationship and was in charge of all of the speculating and the land purchases and everything. And, and he acknowledged she was better at it. And yet, when Mercy Otis Warren criticized him, he said, history is not the province of the ladies and something I defy uh, on a daily basis. And so, you know, it gets back to the concept of human behavior is ideas are really great. And sometimes they meet the reality of the situation and whether it's people's prejudices or social limitations, they cannot apply those more broadly Women and race, of course, are the big question in the Enlightenment in terms of its limitations. Um, and, you know, but even things like class are important as well. At this point, people are starting to talk about the importance of education and an educated citizenry. The concept of schooling is obviously one that Jefferson toyed around with a great deal. The concept of a, whether there should be public schooling that was available to those who were less well-off or came from a less wealthy family started to be really considered, recognizing that education was the key to success and participation as a more involved citizen and started to try and find ways to provide that for white boys. So, you know, there's these ideas that, you know, even those who are born without some of the privileges should be included in this, and yet it, it isn't applied and it is one of the, the great frustrations. Both of you have talked about uh, the Enlightenment today, and, and this movement goes back centuries, the creation of, of this kind of thought. How do you both look at this? I mean, obviously, humans have progressed 
the Enlightenment has become a pathway to more equal rights, but you both acknowledge there's a long ways to go. Uh, how do you look at that? I look at it with great optimism while acknowledging the weaknesses, blindnesses, and failures and prejudices of the Enlightenment. Uh, and sometimes it's shallowness. I think it's the best thing that ever happened to humanity. Sometimes it's four steps forward, two steps back. Recently it's felt like one step forward and four steps back, but it keeps lurching forward into wider and wider ways. And I think that there's no, for all of the critique of the Enlightenment and all of the things that we can find fault with it, that there's no turning back and it is actually going to solve the problem. I'm with Jefferson, he said, some sooner, some later, but eventually all people in the world will enjoy due process, habeas corpus, trial by jury, and other basic human rights like these. And so I feel very optimistic, but quite momentarily disappointed. What about you, Lindsay? I love your optimism. I'm going to replay this segment for myself whenever I'm feeling a little bit despondent, which at the moment is is fairly often. Um, I agree that you can't put these ideas back in the bottle. I fear that at least as a society, actually, no, I think there's I think there's a lot of this going on across the world. There is a reversion on certain things. There is a rejection of scientific thought and expertise, a return to mysticism, which one might consider to, you know, conspiracy theories, things of that nature, a uh, rejection of progress and attempt to diminish voting rights. For example, you know, um, in this is sort of circling back to the beginning of our conversation, the the post that I put out this week about what the founders intended, I gave examples of the things that they were concerned about. And primarily they were concerned about, you know, the sanctity of their territory, whether or not Great Britain or France or Spain was going to invade, whether or not the country was going to be split into factions, the possibility of a violent enslaved uprising. They were not concerned about climate change. They were not concerned about... Um, you know, any number of other things that we are focused on today. And someone commented, they were very upset that I had mentioned climate change because in 1804, there had been a giant hailstorm in France. And so therefore, climate had always changed, which, yes, that is true that climate does change, but that is a rejection of science. Science has demonstrated that these changes are with good reason and they happen for a purpose. And you know, at this point, the science is irrefutable, and the only people who are refuting it are doing so for political purposes. And so I hope that the Enlightenment ideas that we've discussed, that, you know, you and I are obviously huge believers in, and in some ways our, our life's work is a dedication to those ideas of trying to improve and understand our knowledge and better our society's knowledge, which is sort of a core tenant of the Enlightenment you know, we, ha we have seen an increase in authoritarianism across the globe, and yet a new generation is actually really pushing back against that. And when I engage with students, when I engage with activists, when I hear interviews with activists across the world, I am hopeful that the democratization that technology can offer will actually provide a avenue through which this newer generation can help the Enlightenment live on. I'm so glad the two of you have joined in optimism to bring this conversation to a close. Before we go, again, 
Lindsay Chervinsky, her book, The Cabinet, George Washington, and the Creation of an American Institution. I think that's how we first met you, was talking about that book on this program. Do you have anything coming up that you'd like listeners to know about? Well, for those listeners who have not already read The Cabinet, the paperback will be available in February 2022. Very excited about that. And the hardcover is available anywhere that you like to buy books, whether it be online or at your local bookstore. And you can find out more about Lindsay and her work at jeffersonhour.com. How about you, sir? Yes, two things. First of all, Jefferson wrote a letter, um, several versions of it later in life, in which he said the fact of the book means that Tyranny is on the wane and liberty will rise because books can be smuggled across borders. And the portability of books means when people read The Rights of Man by Thomas Paine or read the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty or read the American Bill of Rights, they're never going to be okay until they achieve those rights. He said, maybe it's oceans of blood before we get there, but we will get there. And the last letter that he wrote, the last of his 26,000 or so letters, just a few days before his death, to Roger Waitman of D.C., said, all eyes are open or opening to the rights of man. The gradual spread of the light of science has already laid open to every view the palpable truth that the mass of men were not born with saddles on their backs, nor a favored few booted and spurred, ready to ride them legitimately by the grace of God. Let that be the ground of hope for others. That's the creed of Jeffersonian optimism. That's what we have to continue to fight for. We aren't there yet, but we're on the path and we must never give up. Thanks to Lindsay Chervinsky. Always a delight to have you with us. We'll see you in about three or four weeks for another uh, of our conversations. But meanwhile, thanks everyone. We'll see you next week for another exciting edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.